Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. So, we are finishing Romans tonight. Yeah? All right, amen. Cool. Um, do you guys like Romans? Yeah. Yeah, it was okay. Not so bad. Easily in my top 66 biblical books. So yeah, we made it all the way to the end here. Um, if you've been traveling with us through this whole thing, we've gotten to see this whole kind of grand tour that Paul's taken us through all the way back to Romans 1, where Paul starts off by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And then we saw in Romans 2 and 3, where uh, Paul lays out this kind of thing where he says, no one gets to stand over each other. No one gets to judge each other because we're all sinners before God and we're all saved by the same grace of God. Then we saw in chapters four and seven um, that Paul gets into this argument that it's not the law that saves us, right? It's not religious traditions. It's not religious affiliations. It's not where you were born, but it's faith. It's a relationship with God. It's being willing to be found by the living God to open our hands and be loved by God. We saw Paul's great declarations in Romans 8 that we've been raised up with Christ and now we live in the spirit in the age to come and nothing can separate us from the love of God. We saw Paul declare in Romans 9 through 11 that Israel, has, though it's in rebellion from God, will be saved in the end. But even in this rebellion, God is bringing all the Gentiles in. We saw Paul's imperative in Romans 12 and 13 that we be living sacrifices, that we let this great love actually change us so we become like Jesus in all that we do and how we live and how we relate to neighbors, how we relate to the state, how we relate to one another. We saw Paul's declaration in Romans 14 that unity is more important than being right because we are all servants of God. Just last week, if you were here, Scotty led us through Romans 15, and we looked at the family of God and Paul's beautiful charge to the Romans community that they teach one another, that they take care of one another, that they pray for one another. And generally, it would seem like this is a pretty good place to stop. Everything's been covered. Paul's gotten through all his main points that he wants to say. He's even given a charge to the community. So there's been kind of a long Christian tradition of skipping Romans 16. It's kind of like the, uh, you know, it's like the index at the back. And what it is, if you haven't read this chapter before, I'm waiting to read it to us. Paul will greet 26 different members of the Roman community and say hi from another 10 people that he is writing from. So it's really a long list of names. So a lot of times people just go, all right, well, you know, we got all the important stuff. And now there's just kind of like, you know, it's like the terms and services agreement of like, I think I'm supposed to read it, but nobody ever actually has, right? You just kind of click it and hope for the best. And yet there's actually something awesome in this chapter. Like I said, Paul will name some 26 different people at Rome and send greetings from another 10. And when we're willing to sit with this chapter, what we realize is that the church is never just a concept, right? The church is never just like this abstract idea. The church is always made up of people. And what we can discern from this list is that generally, the church is always made up of regular people, like you and me. 
And likewise, the gospel is not an abstract reality, but it happens on the ground in regular communities through regular people living regular lives in ordinary churches, just like ours. Here at the end of this great letter, Paul will return to his big themes, right? God is going to restore all things. God is going to make all things new. The God of peace will will crush Satan under your feet. But in giving us this list, he reminds us that God's chosen vehicle for this great renewal is us. It's you and me. It's the church, and it's not like an idealized version of the church, right? It's not a finished version of you or a finished version of the church. It's the same old regular church that's always existed with surprisingly regular people of all walks of life. And so that might feel like a down note, but it's actually just the opposite. The, The powerful good news of Romans 16 is this, that your life matters. God's not waiting for like the perfect version of your life to exist. God's not waiting for the perfect version of our life together to exist. Your life matters now. Even in the emails, even in the mundane, even in the boring moments, even in the grocery shopping, even in all these things, it matters. Somehow those are part of God's great salvation story. In some weird way, God is using ordinary people like us to usher in the kingdom of God. Amen. So now I'm going to read this, and I didn't want to read it on the front end because I figured we'd all just glaze over it, but I want you to try and use your imagination with this. There's 36 names here I have to get through. I think I know how to say them all. I want you to imagine these folks as regular people with jobs, paying bills, raising kids, living life. Don't imagine them as dead historical people. And for that matter, don't imagine them as saints, like walking around with halos in their heads, like walking in the clouds. These are regular people. So try and just just close your eyes or listen and just imagine these folks. So here we go. Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apolles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. 
Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And Timothy, my coworker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church enjoy here, sends his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cortus send you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden long ago, long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles may come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of the Lord. All right, you guys got it all? So pop quiz next week on uh, who Rufus is and how his mother is related to Paul. Rufus, the guy who fixed the roof. That's right. Yeah, I like that. Right. Yep, we got Phoebe the star friends, Rufus the roofer. Good way to remember these guys. I like it. So how'd you guys do? Did you kind of glaze over or could you kind of keep these folks in your imagination a little bit? I know it's a lot of work to do that. Um, what's fun is you can, we can actually learn quite a bit about who these folks are just based on their names. And it tells us a lot about what the first century church was like. Um, first of all, one of the things we'll notice right away is Paul is not addressing one like large congregation. He addresses five different house churches. So probably you had a collection of house churches in Rome that were, you know, all small, regular, not mega churches, not these big powerful enterprises. And so again, Paul is giving this great treatise of theology to these fledgling little regular communities in Rome. And when we look at who's making up these communities, it's actually a shockingly diverse list of people. Um, if, we, if we jump over to Galatians 3.28, there's this, this famous verse by Paul where he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And when we look at this list in Romans 16, what we find is like, this isn't just like the diversity statement you put up at, like at the beginning of the semester, right? To say like, no, this is what we believe, but we actually suck at it. That's usually, you know, how it goes. 
we actually find that like they were living this out in Rome, which is really profound. So first of all, uh, Paul's letter that he says there, uh, when he says there is neither Jew nor uh, Gentile in Christ, we see this on this list. We have people like Eponidas, a Gentile convert from the non-Jewish city of Ephesus. But then we also have people like Andronica and Junia, who Paul says are my fellow Jews outstanding among the apostles. They were in Christ before I was, which means they were most likely Palestinian Christians, right? They go back to the story, the beginning of the story. Calling them apostles in this case means they were probably witnesses to the resurrected Christ, which is a way of saying you got newbies and you got the folks that were born right up in it. So if you're like a newbie to Christianity, you don't get the cultural references, you don't get the language, or if you were raised like listening to Caleb, this has a powerful message. It says like, you're both called into it. Nobody stands better or higher than anyone else in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. God has a place for you and God wants to use you. Amen? Paul's next part, you can go ahead. Neither slave nor free. We have this whole list of people that show up here. I can read them all again, but you can see that. These are common names among slaves and freedmen and freed women in the church. What we know, uh, even like Rufus and Urbanus were two of the most common slave names in Rome. So in all likelihood, the majority of the Roman church were either slaves or the poor. And what's cool about this, right, is like Paul's not listing them as like recipients of the, of the food bank, right? He's not saying like, hey, you who run the food bank, say hi to these guys who show up and, and feed off the church. He's not talking about uh, talking to the leaders of like the slave outreach in Rome, right? He's talking to these folks as brothers and sisters. He's saying, hey, whatever your status is, that doesn't matter. In Christ, you are here as brothers and sisters and fellow workers in the gospel. And so there's a reminder in this passage that God loves the poor. And if you're poor, God loves you. And God wants to use you in profound ways. And yet on the other side of the ledger, we also have people like Priscilla and Aquila and Phoebe, who we know are patrons. They know, we know Priscilla and Aquila. We met them before in Corinth. They're business owners. They run the, the tent-making business that Paul helps out with. The fact that they can travel, the fact that they're hosting house churches mean they are people of resources. And yet, what do we see them doing with their resources? Caring for the poor, hosting the family of God, using what they have for the kingdom. And it's a reminder that if we have resources and if we have privilege, we don't necessarily need to be ashamed of those things, but to use them for good. Use them for the kingdom. So whether we are rich or poor, slave or free, there's a place for us in the kingdom of God. God is using everyone. In the gospel, everyone gets to play. In Christ, there is neither slave nor free. Because God uses everyone. Amen? And lastly, in Christ there is neither male nor female. And this is probably the most fascinating part of this list. Of the 26 people that Paul greets, 17 of them are male. So if you're male, God can use you. I don't know if anyone needs to hear that. But dudes, like you are called into this thing. But what's probably most remarkable about this chapter is the other side of the ledger. Paul names nine women in this chapter, and it would have been common in the ancient world that when you greeted a female person, um, to greet them as the wife of somebody or as the daughter of someone, that they would that their status would have been in relation to a male. But that's not what Paul does. 
He calls them a deacon, a patron, an apostle, a house church leader, those who work hard in the Lord, and Rufus's mother, who has been a mother to me too. Paul doesn't write this letter to the men and say, hey, say hi to your wives while you're at it, right? The women are greeted as leaders and colleagues and fellow workers in the gospel. Here's a quote from John Taves. He says this, Romans suggest that the established patriarchal status in the household is not important in the churches. Prisca, Junia, and Julia are not identified as wives, nor are the other names of women linked to fathers or husbands. Paul greets the women in Rome because of their commitment to the gospel and leadership in the church, not because of their family relationships. And this might not feel like that crazy to read this in the 21st century, but like this was a this was a big deal. And this is really remarkable in the ancient world. And one of the ways we know this is a big deal is people have been kind of trying to edit it out ever since. Um, uh, specifically Phoebe and Junior. We get to talk about them a little bit here. So Phoebe showed up in the first two verses, right? Phoebe the deacon. Verse one and two say, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Pincraft. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need for you, for she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. So Phoebe, from this verse, we know is a benefactor and a deacon, which means that Phoebe probably hosted the church in Pincray. She was probably a woman who had means. She probably organized it and funded it. If they had a common meal, she probably provided all the extras that they needed for that. Um, and likely she's the one delivering this letter to the Roman community. So she's the emissary sent from wherever Paul is to bring this letter, which is why Paul's saying, I commend Phoebe to you. And we don't know exactly what it meant to be a deacon in the first century, but everywhere else that Paul uses this word, it's for a leader in the community or a government official. It's always for someone with a, with a ministry role within the community. But over the, the centuries, people have said, you know, a female deacon, that can't be right. So you find, they find ways to translate this word. You might, one way is to translate it as servant, which is what the word deacon literally means, but it's kind of this dismissive way of being like, great Phoebe, who, you know, helped out in the kids' ministry, right? She, she was a, a good servant to the church. And it kind of misses the sense of leadership and calling that went with this role. Likewise, sometimes you'll find it translated as deaconess, um, despite the fact that it's, the same word that's used for deacon in every other context. There's not actually a feminine version of that word. It's just the word deacon. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit like saying, you know, she's a doctor, but like a lady doctor, right? That's, that's kind of what, what you're trying to do a little bit. But no, here we have Phoebe the deacon. That's what it says. Phoebe is a deacon. Um, so apparently the first century church was cool with female leaders. Likewise, when we get down to verse 7, we have this fascinating little verse that shows up. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So these guys were probably a married couple, and it says that they were outstanding among the apostles. Which again raises this question of like, huh, a female apostle. And that stood for about a thousand years before someone in the Middle Ages was like, no, no, that can't be right. It must not be Junia. It must be Junius, which is a male name. Now, it doesn't matter that like 
Junio is actually a very common female name. And as far as we know, there weren't actually people named Junius. But starting in like the Reformation, when Bible translation became more popular, all of a sudden this name would show up as Junius without any textual history before that. And in fact, the first English translation to use the word Junius was in 1881. But you will still find it in conservative translations today. But it's wrong. And this isn't like a debatable one. There's like no textual history to this. It's Junia, the female, who was apparently an apostle. And history bears this out. If we read the history of the early church, we actually see female leaders doing all sorts of things, organizing churches, leading churches, dying for churches. It's only actually when we get into the third and fourth century, when the church kind of goes mainstream, that it kind of gets absorbed into the power structures and the normal ways of being in the ancient world. And female leaders kind of get pushed to the side. So if you want to know why we believe in women and leadership of redemption, Romans 16 is actually a pretty good place to start. Which all brings me around to the larger point. In the gospel, everyone gets to play. God uses Jews and Greeks. God uses slaves and free people. God uses the rich and the poor. God uses men and women. God uses everyone. Even regular old people like you and me. So how have you written yourself off for the work of the gospel? Maybe you think you aren't qualified enough, don't have the right degree, don't have the right credentials, you're not smart or loud or charismatic. Or maybe we think we aren't ready, right? That once we're a finished product, once we're further along, once we finish that degree or once we get a little bit older, then we'll let God use us. Then things will really happen. But again, Romans 16 presents just this picture, this snapshot of like a regular community of regular people. And that includes people like us. And likewise, the same is true of the church. Church has never been perfect. It's always been an unfinished product. And yet this is who God chooses to do his work. That doesn't mean we, we get to be lax about our imperfections or our sins, right? We should always seek to grow and to improve and, and to become more holy. But if you're waiting for God to like make us finished to do stuff, that's not really how it works. Or likewise, if you think if I just went to a more perfect church, God would really use it. It's like, no, that's not really how it works. So don't let, let ever let people sell you on like the nostalgia thing with the church of like the church used to be holy. It's like, no, no. Every generation, it might have new sins in every generation, new challenges, new problems, but the church has always been broken, has always been regular, has always been ordinary. And that's the vehicle God chooses, which is powerful and cool. Again, that might feel like a lower thing, but it's actually a profound thing that God doesn't need us to be saints. God doesn't need us to be perfect. God can use ordinary communities. God can use ordinary churches. God can use ordinary people to do profound things. Amen. And again, what's this work that God has enlisted us for? Romans 16, 20 says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And that might make us a little uncomfortable if we're uncomfortable with the idea of Satan. 
But this is really good news, right? It means sin will be destroyed. It means death will be thrown into the lake of fire. It means that injustice will fall never to rise again, that God is making all things new. And one day we'll be united with God, with one another, with ourselves. We will become a happy ending. And how will this come about? The God of peace will crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet. Like you and me. Again, writing to a community of regular people. That's crazy, right? And you might be saying, I'm not sure I'm up for that mission. I can't quit my job. I'm not a full-time missionary. I'm not that smart. But God does this work in the ordinary, right? You might be called to open a food bank, but take care of your neighbor in need. And Satan is crushed under your feet. You don't need to cleanse the world of sin, but instead love the sinner who's in your family. And Satan is crushed under your feet. You don't need to solve racism, but humble yourself to listen to those who are different than you. And Satan is crushed under your feet. You don't need to heal the entire world, but you can apologize to those you have hurt. And Satan is crushed under your feet. God is doing something big. God is transforming everything. This is the message of Romans. But most of the time, it's carried out by ordinary people in ordinary places doing things that will never be written about in the history books. Some of us might be called to be a Paul or a Phoebe and do profound, noteworthy things. But I think most of us probably are Persis and Rufus and Urbanus. And that's awesome because, again, it means our lives matter. God doesn't need us to have big dramatic jobs and titles and have big dramatic communities in order to do powerful things. Our lives matter. It means how we interact with our coworkers matter. How we respond to that nasty email matters. What kind of neighbor we are matters. It means our boring, ordinary, regular lives matter. And I don't want it to be a high pressure thing, right? It's not a sense of like, make sure you write that email perfectly because it matters. If anything else, Romans has taught us over and over and over again, God does the work. God's the one who does the work. All we need to do is open our hands and receive and let God do that work through us. So I want you to think about your week ahead. You probably have boring things to do. Buy groceries, go to that staff meeting, write those emails. And as you imagine those things, I want you to think about God in it with you. That somehow the all-powerful, transformative love of God is with you when you get your oil changed. Think about the week ahead and what it would look like to know that God is there next to you in it. I know it's hard to stay in that space, but I invite you to try that this week. As much as you can, stay in that place that as you go about the tasks, the daily ordinary tasks, to remind yourself that God is in it. 
And somehow it all matters. Somehow the kingdom of God is breaking in and God is making all things new. And God wants to use you in those ordinary spaces, in those ordinary tasks. Amen. Romans 16 is rare. We shouldn't forget how weird this is, right? Like you don't read Plato's Republic. And then on the last page, he's like, oh, so say hi to Bob and Mary. Most people who, who write their theology book, right, don't have a last page where they say like, oh, make sure to say hi to like Rufus, Rufus the roofer and uh, Phoebe, you know, the guitar player. But we shouldn't realize like what that means, right? That Paul writes this grand theological treatise, but he doesn't write it into the abstract. He's written it for a community of ordinary people living ordinary lives, saying that, yes, God is truly doing something magnificent, and you are called into it. God is doing this crazy, profound, cosmic work, and somehow his vehicle for doing this is you, is us. And it's not because we've earned it, just the opposite. It's because God loves us. And we can end our time in the book of Romans on this note. God loves you. Not an idealized version of you. God loves you. God loves you so profoundly that he would die for you. God loves you so deeply that nothing can separate you from that love. And you know the primary job that we've received in the book of Romans? is to receive that love and to let it change us, to let it transform us, to let it overflow out of it, to let it turn us into Jesus. And when we do this, we will see the kingdom of God break in all around us. You don't need to be Superman. And this is the good news of Romans 16, that God wants to do this story in our very ordinary daily lives. And yet somehow it's part of this grand cosmic salvation plan. So let yourself be loved by God. Let it transform your days, even your boring ones. And if we do that, we will see the kingdom of God come. Amen? Amen. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org. 